Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here. This is the 7th of February, 2022. It's a Monday and it's in the evening. Not that it matters because we learn any time of day or night. Now let's get directly into the lecture. <clears throat> talk a little bit about lipids. Yes, we shall definitely talk about lipids here. Let me explain to you that the ratio of free fatty acid flux, that is, which fatty acids are turning over based on their utilization in beta oxidation or in complex lipid synthesis, that whole process where free fatty acid is at a higher level in a ratio of free fatty acid divided by all fatty acids now otherwise linked as thioesters or oxygen esters or as amide linkages, for example, when that <clears throat> turnover decreases, that occurs simultaneously with the expansion of WAT, white adipose tissue. Now, we mentioned this last time. You know that adipose and dietary saturated fatty acid levels will correlate with the direct increase in fat cell in size. So you will get an increase in the dimensions of each adipocyte. And you'll also get more adipocytes slowly made as you intake higher amounts of fatty acids. And they can be in multiple forms, of course, typically in triacylglycerol. So <clears throat> another thing to keep in mind, in the adipose, you have a triacylglycerol lipase. And if you inhibit adipocyte tag lipase, it will, of course, <laughs> increase the amount of triacylglycerol. Whereas the inhibition of hormone-sensitive lipase won't increase the amount of tag, but rather the amount of DAG, and that's very significant. That's because protein kinase C and protein kinase D can both be activated by diacylglycerol, which of course can be generated from multiple metabolic pathways, which we're going to get into here in a moment. Not only can DAG be generated in multiple pathways, those pathways are subcellularly compartmentalized. So <clears throat> you're going to get different levels of DAG compositional increases in say, the mitochondrion versus the endoplasmic reticulum, the peroxisome, the nucleus, or the cytoplasm. So those differentiated levels of diacylglycerol will be both in quantity and quality. And so we have to start talking about molecular species of DAG, which I'm going to lead to in a moment. <clears throat> now, diacylglycerol in general, besides this, this discussion we just had about adipocytes, will accumulate in multiple organ systems, including skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, liver, kidney, and pancreas, it will accumulate as obesity increases in an individual. And that means that obesity is linked to the increase in lipase-mediated production of diacylglycerol. And what that does, because diacylglycerol turns on protein kinases, to at least protein kinase C and protein kinase D. We'll talk about their substrates in a minute here. What you get when you get an increase in uh, adiposity because of obesity is a concomitant increase in diacylglycerol, 
which then mediates metabolism that becomes dysfunctional or dyslipidemic. Okay. So when you get the inappropriate activation of protein kinase C or D, you're going to get a direct association correlation to multiple metabolic disorders. DAG sensitive PKC and PKD isoforms obviously therefore play a very important role in the regulation of metabolism. Because when you talk about a protein kinase, you're talking about modifying the activity of usually allosterically controlled enzymes, which means you're regulating the flow of carbon, nitrogen, sulfur to various metabolic pathways, and therefore different metabolic fates, including ultimately cellular fate. Okay, So obesity linked to diabetes, linked to metabolic disorders, is also correlated heavily with increases in diacylglycerol. So what are the sources of DAG in the cell? One thing easy to uh, keep in mind is it produces an intermediate during the de novo biosynthesis of TAG, that's the Kennedy pathway. <clears throat> you also make diacylglycerol during phospholipid synthesis. And of course, during the catabolism of triacylglycerol, which can be stored in cytoplasmic or endoplasmic reticulum uh, linked lipid droplets. Or even phospholipids in the plasma membrane turn over in the Golgi complex, generating diacylglycerol. All of this DAG recruits and promotes the activation of conventional and classical protein kinases, particularly of the C and D class. Okay. So when you think about the cell membrane and you get the um, some kind of induction, signal transduction cascade, <clears throat> the first thing that can happen is phosphatidylcholine and phosphatidylinositol bisphosphate can be acted upon by various enzymes, including phospholipases. These phospholipases will generate diacylglycerol. Diacylglycerol kinase can be used to resynthesize phosphatidic acid. This is still happening in the membrane. Or diacylglycerol lyase or lipase will also generate from DAG mag. So you start off with preformed phospholipids such as PC and phosphatidylinositol bisphosphate. You run them through phospholipase activity to make DAG. DAG can then be converted to phosphatidic acid or to monoacylglycerol. Now, at the same time, plasma membrane-associated DAG will turn on PKC and PKD. They will become phosphorylated. In fact, when protein kinase C becomes phosphorylated, it phosphorylates protein kinase D. So you have DAG to PKC activated by phosphorylation to PKD activated by phosphorylation. Now that's the plasma membrane linkage to DAG. Also in the Golgi, you have, as I mentioned, triacylglycerol. And of course you have certain phospholipids, including phosphatidic acid. So triacyclic can be broken down in the Golgi, 
by lipases to make DAG. Phosphatidic acid can be broken down in the Golgi by phosphohydrolases, also to make DAG. And monoacyglycerol via monoacyglycerol uh, transferase, acyl transferase, will regenerate DAG. You also get DAG from the same pathway that we got in the plasma membrane from phosphatidylcholine. Okay, this is a this is a pathway for phospholipid biosynthesis, um, and also there are multiple phospholipid transferases which can synthesize new phospholipid in the Golgi network and also in the endoplasmic reticulum. There's all there's this part two of where DAG can be made: first the plasma membrane, then the Golgi and the ER via similar enzymes I just mentioned, and then finally. <coughs> From lipid droplets, triacylglycerol uh, can be converted via triacylglycerol lipase to diacylglycerol, but diacylglycerol can also be used to resynthesize triacylglycerol in the lipid via the, the diacylglycerol acyl transferase. Finally, diacylglycerol within the lipid droplet can also be acted upon by either diacylglycerol lipase or hormone-sensitive lipase to make monoacylglycerol. So that gives you some of the idea of the multiple sources of DAG, plasma membrane, lipid droplet, Golgi apparatus, and the endoplasmic reticulum. All of them can contribute to the activation of protein kinase C and from there, protein kinase D, okay? Because DAG is an activator of those two protein kinases. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that when a cell is going through the G0G1 phase, when that occurs, when you go from basically a, a quiescent state to you start moving through the cell cycle, you get an increase in lipid biosynthesis. Particularly, you see this during adipocyte division, but you see this in other cell lineages as well. And this increase in lipid content will promote, if it continues to function at that level of G0G1 during cell cycle, an increase in adipocyte hypertrophy. So the adipocytes will get larger. And that is a direct uh, um, result of a slowing of triacylglycerol turnover. So the larger the adipocyte gets, therefore becoming hypertrophic, becoming larger, the less the triacylglycerol is available for lipase activity. So that means you get an overall increase in triacylglycerol. Now, if you restrict triacylglycerol turnover, as we have been mentioning here, one of the offset results is that you can also make diacylglycerol. So some lipase activity can occur. Or again, phospholipid metabolism and sphingolipid metabolism can also contribute to DAG, as we've been saying. Now, here's another interesting idea to keep in mind. When you release lipid droplets from subcellular domains, such as the Golgi or the ER, you generate free cytoplasmic lipid droplets, droplets, and they also will increase in volume. And this can occur because of localized triacylglycerol biosynthesis or by fusion with other lipid droplets. That's the kind of fusion called homotypic, of course. So that means the number and the size of lipid droplets in the cytoplasm 
is going to be correlated with any increase in triacylglycerol, which is directly linked to the obesogenic state. So obesity is going to cause a drive towards this increase in cytoplasmic lipid droplets moved from the ER and the Golgi to the cytoplasm. So there's also a obesity-associated adipocyte cellular death. And this is not an, a, an apoptosis. This is more like a necrosis program cell death. So linked to this are nod-like receptors. And you have a family of pyrin domain-containing proteins. And this is the nod-pyrin domain-containing complex known as NLRP3. And now we're talking about the organization of the inflammasome. Once you get NLRP, NLRP3 inflammasome um, biosynthesis and accumulation, you start to generate an inflammasome-dependent caspase activity, and that will then activate only in hypertrophic adipocytes, which, of course, are increasing in obesity. Right? And what that leads to in those adipocytes, because of this increase, because you made an inflammasome in the middle of the adipose tissue, is you get PCD via pyrotosis. Now, pyrotosis, that certain kind of programmed cell death, where cellular contents are expelled, and therefore, because they are outside in the extracellular matrix, they will trigger an innate immune response. The innate immune response will kick in, like we mentioned last time, first synthesizing pro-inflammatory cytokines and then chemokines to traffic more innate immune cells to that location, therefore generating not only an increase in trafficking of inflammatory cells and pro-inflammatory signals like cytokines and eicosanoids, which you know, but also you will increase the amount of adipocyte program cell death via pyrotosis, which will then further exacerbate the inflammatory response because you're putting out organic molecules outside the cell and that always triggers an inflammatory response because it means the cells are not only dying, but they're releasing their content. So that meant that kind of program cell death means something's damaging to those cells and that damaging event could mean the requirement for an immune activation. And that's what happens. So when you think about adipocyte turnover via pyrotosis, that actually is a prolegomena for the transition from a hypertrophic all the way to a hyperplastic type of obesity, where not only are the cells getting bigger, the adipocytes, but you're starting to make more adipocytes. So it becomes hyperplastic. And that means you're going to turn on a whole new suite of major transcription factors. And those, of course, are going to be lipid-associated. So that's the CAT enhancer-binding proteins, beta and delta. And they play very crucial roles in the induction of new transcription factors, such as the peroxidome proliferator activator receptor gamma. So once you make PPRA gamma, 
you then turn on more CCAT, enhancer binding protein alpha, and sterile regulatory element binding protein one, right? And that's all going to now reconfigure the chromatin retailering for increases in specific transcriptional activation. And what you're going to lead to is adipogenesis. That's how obesity can lead to first hypertrophy and then to adipocyte cell division. So all those things are occurring, cell death, adipogenesis, increase in inflammation, the release of lipid droplets from the subcellular compartments, the Yara and the Golgi into the cytoplasm, and then the increase also of diacylglycerol, which is going to turn on the protein kinase pathways. All of this is dysfunctional dyslipidemia because it's leading to chronic inflammation. Right? And this can occur anywhere, not just in the adipose. It can occur wherever there are oil droplets, as I said. For example, the liver, a fatty liver, or the kidney, or the pancreas, or the lung, or the cardium. Anywhere where there's an increase in oil body deposition, can this be enhanced, especially with the increased trafficking of triacylglycerol, which of course is going to be common in the obesogenic state. Okay. So now we're getting into the depth of it. Uh, okay. A couple of other things to keep in mind. When diacylglycerol is produced and it fires the phosphorylation of protein kinase C and dense protein kinase D, multiple activities can occur at the cellular and tissue and homeostatic level in the human. For example, directly to the hypothalamus, if you get an increase in protein kinase C isoform theta, which can be generated from that kind of diacylglycerol mitigation of PKC activation, in the hypothalamus, you get, number one, a suppression of appetite. And remember, that's going to be working with those um, NPY, a goody-related protein, POMC nuclei, right? Of course it will. What else is going on here when you get DAG uh, produced? Well, many things. You will get protein kinase C epsilon, protein kinase C theta, protein kinase C beta, Delta, and even protein kinase D3, all of which will block insulin sensitivity. That means you'll generate insulin insensitivity in multiple organ lineages. Likewise, protein kinase C epsilon will block ketogenesis, whereas protein kinase C epsilon will increase gluconeogenesis thus increasing the capacity for the diabetic state. Protein kinase C beta will increase cholesterol metabolism, increasing the amount of oxysterol produced, and therefore the potential for the production of atherosclerotic plaques throughout all the lineages of cells. Protein kinase C beta also increases, of course, lipogenesis. This is all happening in the liver, Okay. So the hypothalamus, you get a suppression of appetite. The liver, insulin sensitivity drops, ketogenesis drops, but gluconeogenesis, cholesterol metabolism, lipogenesis all increase because of the activation of the specific isoforms of protein kinase C, and in one case, protein kinase D. 
<clears throat> now, what about the skeletal muscle? More interesting <coughs> events occur. Diacylglycerol-mediated activation of protein kinase D3 will increase glucose uptake in skeletal muscle. At the same time, it will diminish insulin sensitivity. And, you know, skeletal muscle requires insulin for uptake of glucose. So that means you're going to have a blockage of glucose uptake. At the same time, you're getting an increase. So there will be a competition between protein kinase D3 and then protein kinases D1, C epsilon, C beta, C theta, C alpha, and C delta. Okay. And depending on which of those isoforms that turn up, you, the, all of those I just mentioned will all block insulin sensitivity, which means you'll cause insulin in resistance in skeletal muscle. That's never a good thing. Protein kinase D will also cause oxidative myofiber phenotype development, which means you're going to have more TCA and less glycolytic cell fibers, right? On top of that, protein kinase C theta will increase the inflammatory response, partially through that pyrotosis mechanism now occurring in skeletal muscle. And you'll also get some myoblast differentiation if you get an activation of protein kinase C epsilon or protein kinase D2. But that can be blocked. So this would be the contrarian if protein kinase C beta is generated. Now, in the adipose tissue, we kind of already went over this, but protein kinase C deactivation, if you get C epsilon or C beta, you again decrease insulin sensitivity. Glucose uptake is insulin sensitive or requiring an adipose, so this would not be a good thing. More glucose then stays in circulation. However, protein kinase C beta and epsilon in the adipose will increase adipogenesis. So you get a blockage of insulin sensitivity, that is a slowing down of glucose uptake. At the same time, you're getting adipogenesis. Protein kinase C epsilon will turn everything around and allow for glute to be transported to the surface. This can therefore mediate glucose uptake even as insulin sensitivity drops. That's correct. And protein kinase D1 will block thermogenesis, which of course will only aggravate the obesity. Okay. Finally, at pancreatic beta cells, which of course are important for insulin, and glucagon secretion. <clears throat> protein kinases C epsilon, alpha, and D1 will increase insulin secretion. Um, protein kinase C epsilon and delta will also induce beta cell dysfunction at the same time. And protein kinase C delta will also increase in the pancreatic beta cell cytokine-induced apoptosis. This is normal program cell death. Whereas protein kinase D2 <coughs> will cause hyperinsulinemia, will block, excuse me, hyperinsulinemia, which is actually a good thing because this can lead to further dysregulation of the insulin-mediated pathways. So you see how depending on which protein kinases are activated, you get a competition of events, some of which can bring back a homeostatic healthy state but many of which, because of diacylglycerol accumulation, would be pathophysiological, pathobiochemical, leading to an increase in the obesogenic state and all the disease sequelae we talk about when we talk about obesity.
Now, let's get into a discussion of heart failure. <clears throat> heart failure is, of course, leading cause of mortality worldwide. Studies have shown that over 50% of people with heart failure have what's known as a preserved ejection fraction rather than a reduced ejection fraction. So the prevalence of the preserved ejection fraction, or HFPEF, will likely increase as the population ages and becomes more obese. And this will lead directly to, or highly correlated with, the predominant form of heart failure. No therapies for the reduced ejection fraction have shown a, a correlative efficacy in the preserved ejection fraction. So you can increase reduced ejection fraction, but you can't block the preserved ejection fraction, okay? Because there are two different mechanisms. So the uh, pharmaceutical companies are looking for a compound that would specifically, therefore, <coughs> work to decrease the preserved ejection fraction at the same time simultaneously increasing the reduced ejection fraction. You see how that works, right? So that, then we're talking about agonists and antagonists and partial agonists, right? All right, now, <clears throat> major therapy then for the preserved ejection fraction, which leads to heart failure, remember, uh, is the fact that we don't have good animal models, models to study this. So, but what is known from some knockout studies is that the heart failure preserved ejection fraction phenotype, okay, that particular one, seems to be a systemic disease, not just associated with the cardiomyocyte dysfunction. In fact, there are multiple comorbidities with this increased heart failure preserved ejection fraction phenotype, and they include the normal suspects, of course, diabetes type 2, obesity, which is already causing and linked to this directly, hypertension, and an even an acceleration of the aging are all promoted by increasing heart failure via the preserved ejection fraction phenotype, okay? So hopefully you're starting to get a picture here of how the disease itself is induced by dyslipidemia, but at the same time, dyslipidemia procures a disease phenotype that accelerates all these other disorders and diseases that are linked to heart failure, right? Such as systemic diseases in the liver and the lung and in the kidney and the pancreas. And ultimately also, as we talked about with the hypothalamus, right? So there's a lot of argument about what can be done in terms of altering diacylglycerol metabolism and indeed about how you can program carbon utilization in the heart that may then alter neurohormonal and just endocrine hormonal control over lipogenesis versus beta oxidation as it's associated with the heart and all of the systems that cooperate with it, including, of course, circulation, right? So cardiac protein hyperacetylation has been looked at, and it's frequently found in this particularly um, high morbidity, 
high fatality um, heart failure phenotype. Remember, that's the one that has preserved ejection fraction. Okay, so that means you're getting protein hypercellulation. Now, you and I know, because I talk about it in pathetic biochemistry extensively, that this acetylation can be on histones, <clears throat> which means an activation of certain chromatin retailering, increasing the amount of gene expression, but it can also occur on uh, nucleotides on DNA, and that acetylation of nucleotides has that pleiotropic effect on epigenetic alterations of gene expression. Likewise, the acetylation of subcellular and cytoplasmic proteins has a differential effect on their activation or deactivation. Remember our discussions of sirtuins at great length all throughout the fall of 2021. So I suggest if you want to go back and review those sirtuin lectures, that might not be a bad time after today's lecture. There's also an interest in doing mitochondrial targeting because obviously the mitochondria is linked to heart failure because yes, indeed, of course, this has to do with the amount of oxygen utilization and that vents the potential for reactive oxygen and the turnover of lipids in the cardio. Okay. So this has all been extensively examined. So I'm going to continue with this discussion, um, going more into directly, as we've been today, into the biochemistry of acetyl-CoA, palmitoyl-CoA, stereo-CoA, complex lipid biosynthesis, as associated with histone lysine acetylation, all linked to diacylglycerol production, and ultimately systemically, but initially in the hypertrophic, hypertrophic adipose and depot fat as associated directly with, yeah, with obesity. Okay. So we're going to